Blessed is the man who delights in, excuse me, who takes refuge in the Messiah. Taking refuge in the Messiah is by far the most important of those two blessings. So here's two ways that we get blessed. We get blessed by delighting in God's word and meditating on it. But most importantly, we get blessed by taking refuge in the Messiah, hiding ourselves in the Messiah. And that's the subject of this morning's text. Although this psalm has no superscription, the New Testament, in other words, it doesn't tell us who wrote it. The New Testament tells us that David wrote it. So let's read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, the word anointed is capitalized because Christ means the anointed. So it's a direct reference here to the Messiah. Verse 2 again. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his anointed, the Christ, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, that he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them in pieces. Excuse me, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm ends with a word of hope. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 identifies the office and the identity of the Messiah. And the main point is this. The Messiah will be God's king. He will crush all opposition to his authority, but God will bless everyone who takes refuge in him. Let me say that again. The Messiah is God's king. He will crush all opposition to his authority but God will bless everyone who takes refuge in him. This psalm is all about authority. And this poses a problem for us because we live in an anti-authoritarian age. Inherited authority, biblical authority, civil authority, the police, think defund the police movement recently, are all generally despised. Um, Dr. Peter Jones writes, and he wrote this 20 years ago, it's gotten worse since he wrote this. Quote, we really are now in the presence of a massive rejection of authority. There is no authority. Seventy-some percent of Americans no longer believe that, that there is any absolute truth. Even amongst evangelicals, 40 percent no longer believe that there is any kind of ultimate truth. We really are in the presence of a massive 
change in the way people view authority. That's really true, end of quote. That's true, and it's hard for us to understand that because we're like the frog in the pot. This has happened gradually and slowly, and the water's gradually warmed, and we're just used to this. But if we were to compare ourselves to <clears throat> Europe 100 years ago, or even America 100 years ago, we'd see a radical difference in our approach to authority. To understand this psalm, we need some backstory. And we're going to start with Genesis chapter 1. On the sixth day of creation, God created man and, and Adam and Eve, and this is what he said. Then God said, let them make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion, dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every creeping thing. So God created Adam to be a king. God created Adam to exercise God's dominion on the earth. And of course, when we say that, that's fraught with interpretation for us because when we think of kings, we think of people that use and abuse people. But in Adam's case, he was sinless. So it would have been the, the happiness of his subjects at Adam's expense, okay, before sin came. But as we all know, Adam sinned. And when that happened, God withdrew this uh, privilege of exercising God's dominion of being a king. And therefore, Scripture began to predict the coming of a second Adam who would exercise the dominion that the first Adam forfeited. For example, skip forward a thousand years in biblical history and we come to Abraham, Genesis chapter 17. God tells Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Now, Abraham was a shepherd. He was a long ways away from any kings or kingdoms. And he must have thought to himself, wow, what does this mean? Kings shall come from your, your seed, from your loins. Of course, at this time also, he's childless. In fact, his wife is barren and cannot have children. So he's taking on faith that what God is telling him is true. Skip forward another thousand years to King David. And we have 2 Samuel chapter 7. The prophet Nathan comes to David and he gives him a lavish promise. Uh, David wants to build a house for God, and God says, No, David, I'm going to build a house for you because you're the man after my own heart. And this is what God says to him in the 12th and 13th verse I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What's God saying? He's saying, the first Adam forfeited his dominion when he sinned, but I'm going to send a second Adam, a human being, who will be my king and be Lord, and he will rule my creation forever, and his kingdom will never end. And David, that king shall come from your loins. He will be, he will be descended from you physically. Now, David wrote Psalm 2. And we don't know if he wrote this psalm before that prophecy came or after that prophecy came. But either way, he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, the son of David, the second Adam that God had promised David. He will come to restore God's original intention of dominion. In other words, he's coming as a second Adam to receive and exercise the authority that God gave the first Adam that he forfeited. The psalm divides into three parts. First, authority rejected. Second, authority responding. God responds to that rejection. And thirdly, authority reconciling. God, through, the, through David, who was a prophet, 
prophesies that God will hold out the olive branch of reconciliation to the rebels, okay? Three parts, authority rejected, authority responded, responding, authority reconciling. Okay, so first of all, authority rejected. Let's look at verse 1, 2, and 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Again, that's the word Yahweh. And against his anointed, the Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I mean, we, now we have, here, here we have rebellion. We have David prophesying that this is going to be kind of the, the uh, as long as the world has fallen, this will be the problem. People will be saying, uh, notice it's all inclusive. It's nations, peoples, kings, rulers, everybody basically is saying, I don't want this king to tell me what to do. I'm going to burst his, the bonds apart. I'm going to cast away his cords. He's not going to restrain me at all. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to make my own rules for life. I'm going to be autonomous. Nobody's telling me what to do. And that's our modern world, isn't it? Notice the all-inclusive language again. Everybody's included. In fact, this text is telling us that they hate Yahweh and they hate his anointed, the Messiah. The language again is universal. Our fallen world is in constant rebellion against God's authority. Why are we in rebellion? Because we love sin. And the second Adam, God's king, the Messiah, comes to detach us from our sin. Jesus said this very clearly in the Gospels in the New Testament. And he, as he's getting, at the Last Supper, he's getting ready to leave and next day go to be crucified. He tells his disciples this, John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now Jesus is basically saying, listen, they hated me. The Jews, my chosen people, hated me. They've rejected me. It's the prologue to John's gospel. And look what the, and tomorrow they're going to crucify me. So don't be naive about this. This is a fulfillment of the first three verses of Psalm 2. They're in rebellion. Don't be naive about this. They will hate you as well because you're my servants. If The more you're like me, the more you will be hated by the world in which you live. So we talk today much about hate crimes. But hatred of the Messiah is the only hate crime that finally matters. Those that speak most against hate crimes are in fact those most apt to commit the only hate crime that ultimately matters. And it will condemn them to hell for eternity. We don't want that to happen. And the Messiah doesn't want that to happen. So in the Bible, there's only one hate crime. It's hatred of God and of his Messiah. And ironically, the liberals on the left in our culture have talked about hate crimes. They accuse people, conservatives of committing hate crimes because we object to sinful behavior. For example, homosexual acts and uh, uh, all kinds of stuff that we, sh abortion and all kinds of other stuff that God also hates. They've taken the biblical language and turned it upside down. So there's our first point, authority rejected. Point number two, authority responding. Two members of the Trinity respond to this rebellion and treason. And the first is the Father and the second is the Son. 
The Father's response occurs in verse 4, 5, and 6. So if you have your Bible open, look down at your Bible again, and we'll read these verse 4, 5, and 6. And it's disturbing language. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, if we stop and really meditate on those words, that's a disturbing passage. It's disturbing because it may be presenting a God to you that is offensive to you. You don't like what's in this text. Uh, and, but there it is. God mocking, God laughing, uh, wrath and fury. Okay? Those are the four key words in this passage that respond, that, that describe the Father's response, Yahweh's response. Now, it's kind of disturbing for us to think of God as laughing at us and mocking us, but we're told in the first chapter of Proverbs, God again speaking, says this, because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. That's God speaking. So we'll come back to this in a moment. We're going to see that God reveals his love to us through this passage. I'm, I'm tempted to jump off on that subject right now, but I'm not going to do it yet. Okay. The second thing that's very disturbing here is wrath and fury. Those are deeply disturbing words. God, wrathful and furious, and our sins being that serious. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, it's impossible for us to take sin as seriously as God takes it because our minds are darkened by sin. They're clouded. We cannot perceive the horror that sin is. And someday we will. When we're with the Lord, we will see it for what it is. But right now we can't. And so sometimes God's reactions to our sins seem excessive, but they're not excessive. They're appropriate. So rather than adjusting our view down of God, we need to adjust our view up of how serious sin is, okay? The Apostle Paul validates these two words in the second chapter of Romans in the New Testament. He's describing the day of final judgment, and here's what he says. But for those who obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. He goes back to Psalm 2, and he says that he interprets Psalm 2 as referring to the day of final judgment, when those who have not hidden themselves in the Messiah will experience for their rebellion God's wrath and fury. And I don't want to dwell on this too long because we're going to see the love of God through this in a moment. But it's the wrath and free of omnipotence, all power. And uh, that's not a pleasant thought. We should fear God. This is very important. So why wrath and fury? Because God has set his king on Mount Zion. He has established God's, his king's authority and his dominion and Humanity hates it and is in constant rebellion against it. Rebellion against God's authority from God's perspective is cosmic treason. Nevertheless, no human rebellion can thwart, upset, or derail God's authority because his authority is immutable. That means it never changes, and it's absolute, which means it's total. There's no authority that could even remotely challenge God's authority. Notice that the Father responds, I have set my king. The Messiah is a king. 
Kings are authority figures. Our republic exists because we don't like kings. We've, and, and for good reason. Human kings are usually despotic. This king is not despotic. But our republic exists again because we don't like kings. Kings have absolute power. And Lord Acton reminds us that power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. There's only one exception to that, that's God. Power does not corrupt God. There's no corruption in God's power. There's nothing but goodness in God's power. Why is the king on Mount Zion? Zion is the hill on which the temple stood in Jerusalem. It represents the place of God's presence, the seat of his rule and his authority. And therefore, this king will be an earthly king. He'll be a human being. He will be also God's son, so he will be David's son, and he'll be God's son both. So the fathers responded. How about the son's response? It's in verse 7, 8, and 9. Please look down with me at verse 7, 8, and 9. I will tell of the decree, how the son is speaking, the Messiah. The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Vivid language. Very expressive language. I mean, it's, it's, it's very vivid language. You got a guy's got a big rod of iron, and he's got earthen vessels, and he's smashing them with the big rod of iron. It's, the earthen vessels can't stand up to that for even a second, can they? And that's the imagery that we have here. So in verse 7, God's son repeats a decree that his father has expressed. What is his father's decree? Well, two things. The king who will sit on Zion's throne is actually God's son. It will also be David's son. And second, God's son is eternally God's son, but he is begotten. Begotten doesn't mean there was a time when he began to become God's son. This is very difficult to interpret theologically. It mean, but we think the best expression of it would be that God will manifest himself, decor himself, or show himself God's son when the son comes on earth. That's what begotten means. It means that his incarnation, death, and resurrection will make him known as God's son. As a human being, he will be the second Adam. He will restore the authority that the first Adam forfeited. And in that role, he will inherit the nations. He will break the nations with a rod of iron. When will this happen? At Christ's return on the day of final judgment. Okay, so we have good news now in the third part of this text, and that is authority reconciling. Verse 10, 11, and 12. Look down with me in your Bibles again. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Fear and trembling, those two things don't tend to go together in our minds, but kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in him. I want you to notice verse 12, his wrath is quickly kindled. Dave just read us from Exodus 34 this morning, where it says that God is slow to anger. This is one of these tensions in scripture. 
but constantly see. As you read the Bible, you need to constantly be asking yourself, where does the Bible say something that's the opposite? And as we put those opposites together, we get a full picture of what God is like. Because he doesn't want us to experience his wrath and fury, God warns us in this text. He doesn't want to crush us with a rod of iron. And that is why this, these last three verses contain four admonitions. Number one, rulers and kings, and by, by implication, all people everywhere. Be wise. And in the Bible, wisdom is closely connected with prudence. Prudence is a big virtue throughout Proverbs. And to be prudent means you see danger coming and you know how to protect yourself from danger. So for example, you live in the inner city neighborhood here and you know that somebody, you lock your doors because it's prudent to lock your doors. There's danger on the streets and so you protect yourself from the danger. Rulers and kings, be wise. Wisdom implies prudence. Where do we get this wisdom? Well, Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 reads, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this psalm is designed to provoke in us the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a very good thing. And we, it's a, a subject that's not discussed much in the modern church to our great loss. But to not fear God is to, be a, is to sin. Because Romans chapter 3 ends where Paul's describing human sin. And the last thing he says is, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, so holiness is perfected in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. And the Bible tells us that the Messiah delighted in the fear of God. Jesus delighted in the fear of God. So if, if you want to be like Christ, this is a virtue you need to inculcate. Rulers and kings, be wise, be warned. Second, rulers and kings, be warned. We need to heed David's advice here. Responding to warnings is an important fruit of saving faith. Paul constantly warned the church, and in Colossians chapter 1, he describes his ministry this way. Him, meaning Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Parents need to warn their children. Pastors need to warn their flocks. That's just part of what we do as Christians, and not the totality. Obviously, we also need to warm people up with God's love, but this is part of what saving faith brings to us. We read the Bible, we, take, we read it, we let it stir our souls, and we think, man, wrath and fury, I don't want to be on that part. What do I need to do to, to protect myself, to exercise prudence, and to be wise? I need to fear God, okay? Thirdly, Rulers and kings are advised to rejoice with trembling. Same warning appears in Philippians chapter 2. After telling us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to this king who's been exalted to the right hand of God the Father, Paul advises us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? For it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And fourthly, rulers and kings are advised, lastly, to kiss the son lest he be angry. And he ends, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The words take refuge in him hint, give us a hint, a strong hint that God is going to provide a way of salvation uh, from the wrath and fury of God the Father and from the mocking and laughing that appear in the early verses. That God wants to get reconciled to us and that God doesn't want to be in that kind of a relationship with us. 
This is a hint of the gospel to come. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. What does it look like in context of the whole of the Bible to kiss the son? Well, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 tells us that, um, excuse me, I got ahead of myself. And in fact, a way of salvation came 1,000 years later, God's Son came in human form. He declared good news. And the good news was that the kingdom of God is at hand. God's authority has come in the form of a person, David's son. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And by implication, I'm the king. I'm the promised son of David, the king of the Jews. When Jesus appears before, I'm skipping over tons of passages to deal with this, just a couple. But when Jesus appears before Pontius Pilate, Pilate's very threatened by Christ because the Jews have told Pilate that Christ considers himself the king of the Jews. And of course, this is a threat to the Roman authority. So Pilate says, the governor asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. Okay, in other words, yes, I am the king of the Jews. I'm not only the king of the Jews, I'm the king of the universe. I'm the king of the earth. I'm the Lord and master of all things. God the Father has given me a rod of iron, and with it I will break earthen vessels. That means the Roman Empire, and the Greek Empire, and the American Empire, and the Russian Empire, and all empires will eventually collapse under my authority. I'm king of kings and lord of lords. But... God's king came to serve the citizens of his kingdom. He doesn't come to use the citizens of his kingdom like human kings do. He, it's our happiness at his expense. With Biden right now, it's his happiness at the United States' expense. And that's the way it is with most of our human rulers. There's some exceptions, but, and I wouldn't say Biden's all that way, but he's a significant amount of that's at work in our federal government right now. It's we want power and we will, get, we will do whatever we have to do to get it. That's what human rulers look like, but that's not what God's ruler looks like. And here's the first clue. It's in Matthew chapter 27, verse 29. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, the soldiers did. And they put a reed in his right hand and they put a purple cloak on him, the, the symbol for royalty. And they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, what's happening? If you put your faith in Christ, Christ has taken your place here. He's, being, he's fulfilling Psalm 2. He's taking the judgment that we deserve. Remember the Bible? God the Father says, He will hold them in derision, and He will mock them. And Proverbs 1 said, If you reject me, I will mock you and make fun of you and laugh at you. So here is the Christ, the King, the King of the Jews, standing there, and this is part of his atoning for our sins. The soldiers are mocking him and spitting on him and making fun of him and laughing at him. And he created all the soldiers that are doing this. It's the most incredible thing. What do we do with this? And he's, he's taking the mocking so that when Bill Farley put his faith in Jesus Christ, the need to be mocked by God the Father would be fulfilled and be taken away because Jesus was already mocked. He fulfilled the judgment that I deserve. This is what God's authority looks like. 
So I told you earlier that this is, we read Psalm 2 and it looks horrible on the surface. We see, as Dave said when he read Exodus 34 this morning, God is infinitely good in the sense he's kind and merciful and gracious, but he's also infinitely good in the sense that he judges sin. And so here we see both these things. We see God judging our sin in Christ. And we see God the Father also loving us by sending his son to take that judgment so that we won't have to take it. And even worse, when he's crucified, they put a placard over, the, over on the cross because when people were crucified, they put a little sign on the cross saying, this is the crime that this person committed that's causing them to be crucified. Matthew chapter 27. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now what's happening again? You spent your whole life claiming to be king of your own life. In fact, every time you disobey God, you exert your kingship. You say, I'm God. God isn't God. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm king. I'm Lord. I'm the authority. I make the rules for my life. I do what I want to do what I want to do. Nobody's telling me what to do. I've declared myself Lord and King. I've effectively made myself God. That's our whole culture today, isn't it? And here's Jesus on the cross, and the placard says he's being crucified for claiming to be king of the Jews. But he was the king of the Jews. So what's going on? God is visiting the judgment, the wrath and fury on him that our autonomy and rebellion deserves. And that placard is telling us that. He's being crucified for claiming to be king of the Jews. He's being crucified because Bill Farley claimed to be king of his own life. But when Bill, and I deserve wrath and fury, cosmic treason. But when I put my faith in God's son, that wrath and fury got visited on Jesus for being, claiming to be king of the Jews instead of me. This should grip you. If it doesn't, I can't help you. This is a God that's so amazing. What do we do with this? And this is a perfect picture of what Adam's kingship was to look like. See, this is how Adam would have exercised his authority like Jesus did. But when he sinned, it all fell apart, and he began to exercise this authority like we're used to in this world. So this God is safe, and he's terrible all at once. Do you get that? This picture tells us that sin is infinitely serious, so serious that God's son had to come and take his father's wrath and fury to atone for it. But God is so good. God is so merciful and gracious and kind that he came and took that in our place. So two things should happen. You should fear God as you see the horror of sin. And secondly, you should love God as you see how gracious and merciful and good he is. So at the cross, the fear of God and the love of God come together and they join hands. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 3, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They should fear God. They should look at the cross and tremble. 
They should rejoice with trembling. Sorry. There's a great picture of this in C.S. Lewis's little book, <clears throat> excuse me, The Silver Chair. He gives us a picture of this paradox. A 10-year-old girl named Jill is desperately thirsty. She hasn't drunk, had a drink in about a day and a half, and she comes to a stream. But the stream is guarded by a lion, a huge, terrifying lion named Aslan, who in the Narnic, Chronicles of Narnia is a picture of Christ, okay? And so the lion says, are you thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. I'm sorry. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I? Would you, would you mind going away while I do, said the girl. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she, without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. The lion didn't say this as if it was boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. And that's the paradox that Psalm 2 gives us. See, we see that God is terrible and wonderful all at once. He's infinitely just. He's infinitely righteous. His wrath is infinitely holy. He's infinitely merciful and gracious and good. He's a big God, this God we serve. And this little story of Jill meeting Aslan at the stream really expresses it. If we don't drink from, drink from the living waters that God provides us, mentioned in John chapter 4, Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask me for living waters. Jesus has the living water that we need for life. There's no other place we can get it. But we've got to, we have to take some risks to get this living water. There's no other place we can get it, and if we don't get it, we'll die. So, run to Christ. So how do we, the text ends, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. How do we take refuge in him? Just two things, three things actually, very simple. We can all do it this morning. The first is, we put our faith in his atoning work. He came, he died for us. This is how good he is. And we also face up to our sin. We agree that we're sinners, that we deserve judgment that we need to be reconciled to God, and God has provided this massive reconciliation. And secondly, we repent of our sins. That means we, we get right with God's authority. We say, God, I want you to rule over my life. I can't get my life done. I can't make things work. I can't, I'm not sufficient to rule my own life. 
I need you to rule over me. So if there's anything in my life, God, that's contrary to your will, would you change it? I turn from it. I repent of it. That's what it means to come under God's authority. And that's a lifelong process. Every day we say that to God. We say, God, forgive me. Driving down here, driving into church this morning, I was repenting, saying to God, God, forgive me for my hidden sins, sins I'm not aware of that you see very clearly. God, I know I have them. I don't know what they are. Lord, would you forgive me this morning for my hidden sins, my hidden failings? It's a constant life of repentance. And God loves to forgive us. God loves to love us. There's nobody that God will not bring into his kingdom and get reconciled to him. But brothers and sisters, as Psalm 2 shows us, it's a black and white situation. It's we're either in God's kingdom when we're reconciled to him or we're not in its wrath and fury. That is the, the biblical testimony from Genesis to Revelation. How do we take refuge in him? By faith and repentance. Old Testament commentator Derek Kidner writes, you can't take refuge from him. You can only take refuge in him. In other words, you can't get away from him. You may walk out of here today and say, well, I'll just ignore this. I'll go find help somewhere else. No, you can't get away from this God. You'll have to face him on the day of final judgment. All of us will. There's no getting away from him. There's no ignoring him. You cannot take refuge from him. You can only take refuge in him. So the third thing we do is we get baptized. If you've uh, made a declaration of faith, you're living by faith and repentance, and you, need, and you haven't been baptized, it's very important that you get baptized. This morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. That means that we're renewing our covenant with God. What is our covenant? We agree to live in faith and repentance. We agree to believe the gospel. We agree to live a life of repentance, not a life of perfection. We can't be perfect, but a life of repentance. And we say, Father, if I do that, you promise to bless me. You promise to get reconciled. Reconcile yourself to me. You promised to love me. You promised me to adopt me into your family and make me one of your children. You promised to never leave me nor forsake me. So our side of it is repentance and faith. God's side is he dump, backs up this dump truck of blessings and dumps the dump truck on us for eternity. Okay, so before we take the Lord's Supper, it's very important that we get our conscience right with God. If you're not a Christian this morning and you've not made a decision to believe this good news, and turn from your sins and we just encourage you to sit in your chair and watch as people come forward and they partake of they express their faith in the gospel by taking the lord's supper if you're not a member of our church you're welcome to take the lord's supper with us so i'm going to just take a second we're going to let's close our eyes and let's just examine our conscience for just a minute and then if there's some sin that you're not willing to turn away from don't come to the lord's table you'll bring judgment upon yourself in other words you're living hypocrisy. You're saying, I'm going to take the Lord's Supper and renew my covenant, but I'm not willing to give this part of my life to this king. That doesn't work. His authority is absolute, okay? So let's close our eyes. Let's take 30 seconds to examine our conscience.